good to worship the Lord in song, sharing, good to be before his word. We're going to take time this morning actually to start a mini-series, and uh, let me introduce myself if you're new here or new with us online. My name is Paul Buckley, I'm one of the pastors here. We are doing a mini-series, um, just four messages on the kingdom of God, so we'll start that today. And I thought it would be helpful to, to dig a little deeper into this important topic. Um, I think I, we can all grow, I think, in our understanding of the kingdom of God. I know I can. I've been enjoying studying more. Um, I also think that there's a good bit of misunderstanding on the kingdom of God. And I think it would be good to look at the scriptures together. This is an important topic. Uh, theologian and Bible commentator Gordon Fee said the following about understanding the kingdom of God. He said, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand the, this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We've had Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Now, perhaps Dr. Fee is speaking too strongly, but I think we should take note from someone who is a faithful, reliable commentator on Scripture. We can just take note of this and the importance of this topic from looking at some of the most familiar verses in Scripture. We all probably have heard the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just below that in verse 33 of chapter 6 of Matthew, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the kingdom of God functions centrally in the, this prayer and in this exhortation, not to worry about things, but to seek first the kingdom. But if we don't understand what the kingdom is, we are in a little bit of trouble. We're left at a loss to know well, what exactly are we praying and if this uh, section on praying that Jesus gave us, teaching us to pray is more than just a recitation, though that's fine in and of itself, but I, I think it's more. If it's more, then we ought to know what the kingdom is so that we can pray out of this command to ask for his kingdom to come. And if we're supposed to not worry about our financial needs, but instead seek first the kingdom, then we ought to know what the kingdom is. So that's the goal here. We're taking today and three following Sundays to talk about the kingdom of God so that we can pray and seek for the kingdom faithfully. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to help us to understand this. Ask God to help me to be able to communicate it well from his word because um, we need to know what is the kingdom of God. So Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your active presence with us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us. You give us this ability to discern the most important central truth about Christ. But you give us insight as we ask and you reveal the word to us. So thank you, Lord. I pray you'd help us understand the kingdom of God. That we might walk with you and walk in your ways. Help me to teach it well, Lord, and glorify your name through our time, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. What I want to do today is ask and answer the question, what and where is the kingdom of God? What 
And where is the kingdom of God? We're going to do three other messages. The next one I will talk about the kingdom of God uh, that it has already come. The one after that is that it has not yet fully come. And then the final one be, will be what it will look like in its final state. But today, what and where is the kingdom of God? Well, the first way I could answer that is to say what and where the kingdom, the, if you're going to look for the kingdom, look in your Bible. That's the first place if we're going to say where is the kingdom. Throughout your whole Bible, I, I, I know uh, the question means something somewhat differently. We're talking about where in space. But, but we find the kingdom in the Bible, so let's ground ourselves in the Bible and what it says about the kingdom. And I would submit to you that the kingdom of God is a central theme from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible. And so I'm going to take us through a very brief tour of all of Scripture, um, very briefly, to see where the kingdom is in your Bible. I want you to be convinced that this is true and to live out of this. So first we start in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve are created. Actually in Genesis 1, God creates these different realms of the sea and the land and the air and he fills each one with glorious living things. And then he sets mankind over these realms to rule. And so it says in Genesis 1, 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now you might think, well, where is the kingdom here? Well, we might miss it if we don't recognize how profound this statement is that we are made in God's image. That this man and this woman are actually being set as king and queen over creation under the Lord. They're made in God's likeness. That It's a word that was used really at the time for kings. You didn't speak of average humans being in the image of a god. Hebrew people who would have first heard this from Moses, they had come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, the king, the, we call Pharaoh, was considered the very image of a god. So this language is the language of kings. To be the image of God is to be a king. And the implication certainly here in Scripture, which is a greater authority than what Pharaoh or anyone else might think, is that mankind is set over creation as a king and queen under the Lord. So this is kingdom language in, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Also, of course, it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the man and the woman are to have dominion, and they're to rule over all these realms. This is kingdom language here, right? In the very beginning of the Bible. Now we know more of the story that they fail. And they actually abdicate their rule to sin and Satan. They hand over the throne in a sense that they were supposed to sit on as they trusted the Lord and lived by grace. They handed it over to sin and Satan. They lose their, their role and yet God doesn't give up. He pursues mankind and the story of the Bible is that pursuit and we pick up later on in how he pursues the people of Israel. He calls them out of Egypt, out of this false kingdom into his own kingdom. 
He rescues them in power. He demonstrates His kingdom, His reign, His rule is greater than the rule of the greatest kingdom on earth at the time, Egypt. By delivering them in power, He calls them to Himself by grace. He calls them out into the desert, the wilderness, to prepare them. And then He says to them this in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is right before they're given the Ten Commandments. They are to respond to His grace and faithfulness in this covenant. And they, as they do that, are going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the kingdom of God on earth being restored through the Mosaic Covenant. It goes further on in Scripture. The storyline under David, it's more fully developed as David is an actual king. And there's a promise to David to establish his throne forever. There's a promise of establishing the kingdom and the, and the kingdom of God permanently that David receives. It's reflected in Psalm 89. It says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. God promises to establish this kingdom forever. We follow along in the story. We know that David failed. Israel failed. They failed miserably. And after centuries of gross unfaithfulness and evil, God is faithful to Himself and His promises in sending them into exile. He sends them into exile, and yet He is still relentless in pursuing them to rescue them and to restore and establish His kingdom. So in the midst of all this rebellion, in the midst of the promise of bringing judgment on His people for their repentance, God gives these promises about the kingdom. So Isaiah chapter 9, it says, "...for to us a child is born, to us a son is given." And the government shall be upon His shoulder and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So He promises while they are rebelling, He promises to raise up a a king and to establish a kingdom that will never end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So God is still pursuing his people and still promising a kingdom. By the way, uh, as you're listening, you're probably thinking, this is a lot of stuff. Um, I actually made my sermon notes available. If you have the church app, church center app, go to groups, go to to Sunday worship, and the notes are right there. And honey, could you... uh, could you go there and actually send that on uh, the group meet to everybody? Just so you have it. So you don't need to take a vigorous note so you can come back and listen, of course, as well. Sorry, I forgot to tell you that earlier. Um, so let's continue. The promise uh, is seen in Isaiah, but it's also seen once they go into exile. So they're sent into exile, and we have a number of books about this exile. So Daniel is a prominent one. And they're in exile. They're living under another kingdom. So the, the promises, the experience of the kingdom of God under the kingdom of Israel have, have uh, not 
been fulfilled in the way they would have expected because of their sin. And they're sent to live under another kingdom, a godless kingdom. And, and there would be the sense among God's people in that it's like, oh no, this is utter failure because not only did we lose our kingdom, but now we're under another king. And we're under a king that is interested not in the things of God. This is not the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of man. So even under the kingdom of man though, God does amazing things to make it clear that He is establishing another kingdom that will exist alongside these others and eventually overtake them all. And so you can read about this through Daniel's vision and so forth in the book of Daniel. But just one, Daniel chapter 2, it says, And in those days, speaking most likely of the days of the Roman Empire, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. God is promising in the exile that my kingdom will continue and I will establish it and it will overwhelm every other kingdom. A good book for those who are aware of living under the kingdom of man and yet part of the kingdom of God. Well, moving to the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of these promises as God takes on flesh to become human and to be the king that David and Israel and Adam failed to be. He comes in power to establish and inaugurate his kingdom. And we see lots of kingdom language actually in the Gospels as Jesus comes and brings the kingdom as the king, as the God-man in the flesh. So in Luke chapter 11, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you now, is what he's saying. Then in Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God comes through Christ in the midst of people. It's different than what they were expecting at the time, and we'll learn more about that as we continue in this series. But it is there. Jesus is saying it's here in your midst. It's here present with me, with Christ. Jesus comes to establish and inaugurate the kingdom and we need to understand that this kingdom is established through His humiliation, suffering, and death. And He continues to extend the kingdom to this day, by the way, through Service and suffering and even death. And so Paul says in Philippians 2 of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's his kingdom language. But it's a kingdom that's acquired through service and suffering, different than the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus has earned the right to be the king and to rule over it and to extend it. We learn more as we go through the scriptures, through the gospels and acts and the epistles about the kingdom after Christ. 
It's to be established and propagated through the church in the church age. And so there's much teaching in the Gospels and elsewhere. Matthew 16, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter, as a representative of the whole church, ultimately, is to be given the keys. The keys are to be given to the whole church. He will build his church, he promises. The gates of hell will not prevail. And the church will possess the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the church is to be the the steward of the keys of the kingdom. The church is to be connected to the experience and the propagation of the kingdom. We learn elsewhere in Romans 14 that the kingdom is to be the experience of God's people. Now. And so Paul says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's it's not a matter of, of, of rules about eating and drinking and so forth. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is to be the experience of God's people. They are to experience the kingdom of God. They are to experience these things of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Interesting to note in Colossians 4, Paul speaks of his fellow workers this way. He says, And Jesus, who is called Justice, not Jesus the Messiah, but a different person with that name, These are the only men of the circumcision, so Jewish people, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. So he calls them fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So laborers, Christian laborers who are serving the gospel and the the health and mission of the local churches are called workers for the kingdom of God. If you are a worker in the church, which is really all of us, right? Ephesians 4, we're all called to work. We're all called to be part of the ministry. You are a worker for the kingdom of God. Moving to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, we learn that the kingdom of God comes with Christ as Satan is thrown down. Most likely, this particular verse is speaking of his death and resurrection, Christ, Satan being thrown down through that. And it says in Romans 12, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Romans chapter 12. Satan is thrown down and now the kingdom has come. The kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. The culmination of all this is seen at the end of Revelation. So Genesis 1 and Revelation chapter 22 speak about the kingdom. Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. I hope this brief journey through the Bible helps you see that the Bible is about the kingdom of God. It's a major theme. It's not the only theme. but It's a major theme in Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. So where is the kingdom? 
It's in my Bible. All over the place. That's the first answer. And I think if we get that, I think it should have an impact on our lives. And I think maybe we can say with Dr. Fee, maybe you're right. That if I don't get the kingdom of God, in at least some way, I probably don't get what God's doing. And I probably don't get really all of who Jesus is, or maybe the most important, some of the most important aspects of who Jesus is. I'm not saying that if you don't understand the kingdom of God, you're not a believer. But if you really want to know what God's doing, you want to know what the kingdom of God is, where it is, and how do you relate to it? So I hope this just stirs you up to want to know more. So let's continue answering that question, what and where is the kingdom of God? Now there are many perspectives on the kingdom of God. That's important to know. It's not because this is an elusive target that we can't understand, but it's because there are many aspects of the kingdom, what and where it is in Scripture, that sometimes can be taken in the abstract from the other aspects. And so people will look at certain aspects and, and, and stay there and not see that there's more, or they might misinterpret that particular aspect. So there's different ideas out there. One incomplete idea is that the kingdom is the church. They're synonymous. The church of God is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the church. Another is that the kingdom of God is Christ's future millennial reign. That's the kingdom of God. It's not here now. It was maybe present when Christ was around, but it's not there now, and it'll be when he returns, his millennial reign. Another is that the kingdom of God is whenever or wherever people submit to Christ's rule where they believe in Him and, and perform some actions in line. So the kingdom is, is, is really those actions that are happening, that belief in those actions. Or that the kingdom is, a, is simply a matter of your heart. If you are a believer and you want to follow Jesus, then the kingdom is within you. Or that the kingdom of God is where you go when you die. You go to be in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. Now, all these are really incomplete views of the kingdom of God. There are, is truth some truth to these, but they're incomplete. I think theologian Patrick Schreiner and others, but Patrick Schreiner is right when he says this, that the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The kingdom, or the kingdom of God, is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. I think it's a good way to summarize what Scripture teaches on the kingdom. And, and for many of us, we, we tend to think of, you know, castles and so forth when we think kingdom. But it's more than the, the realm, the geographic realm. In the Bible, the kingdom is the king's power itself, is part of the kingdom. It's his reign over the king's people as he reigns in and through his people in the king's place, in the particular places where he reigns. So let's take time just to look through that in Scripture. First, the kingdom is definitely a manifestation of the power, the authority, the rule of the king. And we see this in the life of Christ. He comes on earth and he demonstrates his authority and power and rule as he interacts with the world. And so in Mark chapter 1, it says they were all amazed, so they questioned them among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. And at once His fame spread everywhere through all the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus demonstrates His authority and power and rule by teaching. His teaching is a demonstration of power and authority. And they said, wow, this is amazing teaching. And it comes with authority. 
And he demonstrates it in deliverance, right? He delivers people from unclean spirits and he heals. His miracles are, among many things, a demonstration of the kingdom, a demonstration of the authority and power and rule of the king. It's a, it's a statement to the world, the king has come, the kingdom has come. And he's going to turn the world upside down. And of course, this includes the power to forgive sins. He says in Mark 2, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your, your bed and go home. So Jesus exercises this authority, extends this authority through his death and resurrection, his victory over sin and death. He, he extends his authority, he extends his reign by, through his righteous life, offering up that righteous life on the cross to pay the just penalty for sin so that all who would trust in Him, all who would turn away from their sin, their rebellion against God, their neglect of loving God with all of their being, all of the time, their neglect of loving others as they would love themselves, turning from that sin to Him, all those who put their trust in Him, our sins are put on Him on the cross. He bears our sin. He pays the penalty. He dies in our place. He overcomes the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and eventually the presence of sin in his death. And he's raised again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. This is the resurrection of the king to extend his kingdom, to, to vanquish his enemies, to vanquish sin and death. And the wonderful good news is that through simple repentance and faith, which are just two sides of the same coin of turning to Jesus away from ourselves, through simple repentance and faith, turning to him, we are included in that reign and we are included in that victory. His victory becomes our victory because He overcomes our sin. And He grants to us eternal life that begins the day we believe. And we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, that moment that we believe. So His death and resurrection are about the kingdom extending. He's raised from the dead. He appears to 500 and many others. And then He's brought up into heaven on the clouds. He is, ascends. And the picture there of being brought up in the clouds is a picture connected to what we see in the Old Testament. Promises about the ruler that God would send. His servant, the Son of Man coming. And so it's an it's a ascension to a throne that's going on. And now Christ is on the throne, reigning. And 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us that he's reigning now, it says in verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When he returns and we experience the fullness of new life with new bodies and the new creation, no more sin, no more death. But he's reigning now. He started His reign when He came to earth. He extended His reign in His death and resurrection to us. And now, living in Him, He's reigning in us and through us, and His intention is to put all His enemies under His feet. And side point, that means the Gospel goes to all nations and all peoples. We'll get there soon. So the kingdom is the power, authority, and rule of the King as He exerts His will. To rescue people, restore them, heal them, forgive them, transform them, use them, bring peace and harmony, holiness and wholeness. 
The kingdom is the experience of this rule. Whenever we see and experience the king's rule, power and authority, we are experiencing the kingdom of God. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are in the kingdom and you are experiencing the kingdom. So it's his power, it's his people. It's not power in the abstract. It's not an idea. It's not just an experience. It's something that actually affects people. The king rules over his people. So Jesus tells his disciples, and this implies you and me, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Colossians 1, and I mentioned this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You are members of this kingdom now, through Christ, through faith in Christ. You belong to an eternal kingdom that will grow and grow and grow and rule over all things and last forever. You might be members of another kingdom. We have, in a sense, dual citizenship. We are part of the United States and we are part of this kingdom and there's good and bad mixed in that, but we are more importantly part of an eternal kingdom, a greater kingdom, a perfect kingdom under the ultimate king. You, the people of God, are part of the kingdom of God. And so there's a lifestyle that comes with that. There's a result of living under the king. There's freedom, there's power, there's grace, and there's transformation. So Paul says to the Corinthians as he's trying to correct them in their worldly view of life, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's power, there's transformation in the kingdom. We're not perfect, but we are experiencing change in our lives. This group of people is further defined as the church. And so the verse I read earlier, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church as a whole and the church as expressed as local churches throughout the globe, throughout time, are the people of the kingdom. And they are the place of the kingdom. That might be a hard thing to understand. Okay, is the church people in place, but is it the kingdom itself? It's important to get that. It's important to understand that the church is a significant aspect of the kingdom. So you don't want to diminish that. There's teaching out there that would diminish that. The, local, the church, all, the whole church and local church as part of that is not really the kingdom of God. Well, the scripture says it, it, you're in the kingdom as a believer. And the kingdom of God is you have the keys to the kingdom in the church. The kingdom of God is present in the church, but it's not synonymous. It's not the full extent of the kingdom. The, the kingdom includes actions and experiences as well under the king's power. And th these are some of the things that can be hard. Maybe to compare it with uh, a presidency. So take the presidency of George Washington. I hope that's a, a 
non-controversial presidency. Um, he ruled in a place when he ruled, right? He was president in a place, the United States. He was president over a people, citizens of the country. But his presidency was more than just the place and the people. It was also his actions and policies and the whole experience of living under his presidency. So also the kingdom of God is not just the church and the people, but also the actions and policies and the whole experience of living under the reign of Jesus. These things come together in an analogous way. And so the place of the kingdom is important to understand. It's to be the church. That's part of it. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is interacting with the disciples, if you read there, you'll see that he spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom after he had been raised from the dead before he ascended. And then it says in verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So his answer about the kingdom is to say, you're not going to know all the details, but here's what you can do. This kingdom activity that I want you to do, I want you to be my witnesses. You're going to get power and be my witnesses throughout the globe. Basically, you're going to extend the kingdom as you bring the gospel, as you plant churches throughout the globe on earth. In Revelation 5, we see another aspect of this. It's a vision of the end. And what we see, it says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He ransomed people from everywhere in the globe, every ethnic group, every ethnic subgroup, perhaps every village throughout the world. And then it says this, And you have made them, what? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Where is the kingdom? Throughout the whole globe. As people throughout the globe come under the reign of Jesus, as part of local churches everywhere throughout the globe. That is the intention here. That is the effect that he intends. It's not just earthly, though. It is earthly. It is in, in and through local churches, but not just it's the kingdom of heaven as well. And there have been those who have taught in the past that the kingdom of heaven is distinct from the kingdom of God. I don't think Scripture teaches that. They'll point to the Gospel of Matthew. And part of what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew is writing to mainly Jewish people. And they would be hesitant to say or even write the name God. And so heaven is a, is a polite way to say God. And there's many instances in Scripture you can find that. That's what's going on in Matthew. And it happens actually right in Matthew, in Matthew 19, verses 23 to 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? There it is. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's synonymous. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. There's no distinction. It's just a, another term for the kingdom of heaven. But it does point to the, to the aspect that this kingdom is, is not just on earth, not just among the church, it's also in heaven. It's where God reigns in heaven. That's part of the kingdom. And so Paul, at the end of his ministry, the end of his life, says, as he's facing the end, he says in 2 Timothy 4, for I am 
already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is expecting to go into his heavenly kingdom as part of the kingdom of God. And then Revelation actually brings closure to these ideas of the kingdom being in heaven, the kingdom being on earth among God's people under his reign. It says this, Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. The final version of the kingdom of God is heaven and earth coming together in the, the new Jerusalem. And that is the place of the eternal kingdom of God. Well, I hope you can answer, begin to answer the question, what and where is the kingdom of God? I hope you can see that it is the reign, the authority, the power of the king under Christ, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That it is in and through his people, all those who have turned from sin and put their faith in Jesus. His death, resurrection, reign, and return. It's experienced as we live out our lives here in the church on earth. We are part of the kingdom. We, extend the, we are workers of the kingdom. We extend the kingdom. The reign is extending. We experience the kingdom. We experience the kingdom as we experience the things of God and new life. The love in our hearts that He gives us for Him and for one another is the kingdom of God being experienced in our lives. The power to turn away from sin again and again and to come back into the light and walk in the light. That's the kingdom of God at work. When people come to faith, that's the kingdom of God. When they experience new life. When there are healings that go on, that's new life. When there's deliverance from demonic oppression, that's the kingdom it's here, it's to be throughout the globe, among all peoples. It's in heaven. And one day soon, heaven and earth will be brought together in the perfect and full kingdom of God. I hope that helps you. I hope it encourages you. I hope it equips you. I hope it helps you to think about how to live. This is very practical. Because it affects how we live every moment of every day. It affects our perspective. It affects us as we live in this world because this world as a whole is not the kingdom of God. So much of the world is the kingdom of man. It's mixed. There's good, but it's also under, still, fallen man and Satan. And we live in this world. We live, in a sense, in, in two kingdoms. But the kingdom of God is real. And it's advancing. And these truths in Scripture help us to know how to live here and now, how to interact with our world, how to interact with other kingdoms, how to interact with all these things. So we'll, we'll touch on more and more of this as we go. 
And I'll, I seek, uh, I'll seek to, as we go through it, to bring very practical applications as well. But for now, I trust this has helped you answer that question, what and where is the kingdom of God? So let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the kingdom. We thank you for this important theme. We thank you for the reality of this theme. Thank you that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your Son. We get to experience the kingdom as we gather in your name and as we walk together. We thank you, Lord. Help us to understand more and more what it means to be part of the kingdom, what it means to be a worker of the kingdom, what it means that you're building your church and extending your kingdom. We thank you so much and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.